So I think that when I realized that education didn't fit the definition that I wanted, that was when the real spark started to go off. And I started to do more research and reaching out and trying to see ways that in just two years, I could transform my education experience. Hey everyone, welcome back to University. I'm Anne-Marie Chiresso, your host. On today's show, I talk with Deborah Olatunji, author of Unleashing Your Innovative Genius and Rising UPenn Freshman. Deborah describes herself as an igniter, and I would also like to add the word transformer. If you notice anything about Deborah, you'll notice she's not a victim of her circumstance. Instead, when she sees a problem rather than complain, she focuses her attention on looking for and creating a solution. Deborah overcame her limiting beliefs about her education sophomore year and transformed her experience of high school and set herself up on a path to success. She asks questions like, how can I? And says things like, I have to learn how. Thoughts like this put the wheels in motion in our creative brain and inspire innovative thinking, creative responses, and empowered solutions. I wanted to learn more about Deborah and her affirmative mindset, why she decided junior year of high school to write a book, and what she plans to do as she enters college. So let's pop into my conversation as Deborah explains why she's an igniter and what that means to her. The way that I usually interact with people is through this one word that I actually got from working with my mentor. He has this thing called the one word, um, almost like a challenge, and you do this um, workbook for it. And so my one word is an igniter, and that's the identity that I take on in every single project that I do, because in the spaces that I interact with, I strive to listen to people, to bring them together so that they can collaborate together, to ignite agency, and to really empower the people who are around me in my circle. Because at the end of the day, I want people who interact with me to feel good about the interaction and to have action steps towards their life to make it even better. So I would consider myself like, who is Deborah? I'm an igniter. And that's kind of just what I do. I try to create conversations, even if they are uncomfortable, that cause people to really think about life and then to take action on those conversations based on their feelings so that they can help others help themselves and help their communities. Yeah, that's amazing. That's beautiful. And you're 17 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of fire, lots of ambition at a very early time in your life. And not only do you have all this power and ambition, but behind it, you're actually creating stuff, right? So what is it in you that has sort of lit this fire in you and keeps you so inspired and motivated? I think that my spark definitely started with my frustration with the education system. So when I was a sophomore, actually, that's what me and my twin sister both call our years of transformation, because if there was one year in high school that I absolutely loved, it was sophomore year, because sophomore year changed everything for me. This was the year that I realized that the education system wasn't working. And despite what my siblings had gone through and the advice that I'd gotten from them, I didn't feel like I was in a position to understand and answer the question, what does education mean to me? And that's what I always ask friends that I meet and different peers and even teachers, what does education mean to you and how can we make that definition real? And a lot of the time, whenever I ask this question, no one has the same answer because education means different things to different people. And so when I started to kind of pick apart that question and answer it, I realized that 
none of the things in my definition matched what I was actually going through. And so that was when I realized that it was time for like kind of a 360 degree change of the education system. And it wasn't something that happened overnight. I definitely had to talk to more people, do more research. And that was when I realized like, this education system isn't working. We've been talking about the fact that it isn't working, but no one's doing anything. Mm-hmm. And it was really frustrating because I thought to myself, my siblings have gone through this. Um, my parents have gone through it in, you know, in Nigeria, not in America, but there have been generations and generations of people who have gone through an education system that doesn't work, but no one's, no one, no one's doing anything to change it. And in terms of the edu- American education system, it's the same rinse, repeat, you know, um, almost like we're robots. That's the kind of education that is going across America. And with the pandemic, people are realizing that you can't fill the role of a teacher. Like they're realizing that teachers are so much more valuable. And like also to that point, when we go online, there's so much missing from high school and so much missing from education that you can't replicate at home. So I think that when I realized that education didn't fit the definition that I wanted, that was when the real spark started to go off. And I started to do more research and reaching out and trying to see ways that in just two years, I could transform my education experience. What were some ways you transformed it? So for sophomore year specifically, there was a class that I did not particularly like in the beginning called World History. And the reason why I didn't like it was because it was called World History, but we didn't talk about people who were a part of this so-called world history definition. And we only talked about, you know, conquest in Europe. We talked about Christopher Columbus without end. We constantly talked about how these people would conquer unsuspecting lands and then, you know, things that didn't come to my mind when I thought of world history because I'm Nigerian American and we didn't talk about Nigeria for a single second. We didn't talk about Argentina. We didn't talk about Japan. We didn't talk about countries in the world. And so I realized that a lot of the courses in my high school had this kind of almost like a, almost like clickbait, these titles that made it seem like this is what we were going to get, but it wasn't that at all. Almost like with high school as well. Like when I think of high school, there's so many different things that you come out of it, like exploration, discovery, collaboration, but that's, oftentimes not what you get. So I was in that classroom. I was thinking to myself, I have to learn how to hack this subject because I wanted to take AP World History the next year, but I failed the first test. I got a 59, I'm pretty sure. And seeing that, I realized that this is not the way that I like understand the information. This is not the way I want the subject to go. And how can I bounce back from this 59? <laughs> and I literally got on the first, you know, first week of this test. And how can I learn to like world history despite the fact that it's not what I think that it is. And so in the book, I actually talk about this. And what I ended up doing was looking at the different people that we were studying as kind of persons of interest, like a journalist. And that doesn't work for everyone, but it worked for me, where I was looking at the different people that we were studying, you know, like a journalist was trying to get all the information from them, using source cards and whatnot, getting deeper research. And that's what ended up working for me, as well as, you know, building a deeper relationship with my teacher, actively participating and then talking with my peers and classmates. That's not what's going to work for everybody else. Wait, pause for one second, because you said some really great things in there, and I want to just capture them. You said, I think, three things. You said building a better relationship with your teacher, talking to your peers, and then I think you said something practical, like flashcards. Is that right? Almost like persons of interest cards, like trying to make it more experiential. For yourself. For myself, yes. So you took a subject that you weren't super engaged with, Mm -hmm. and you try to deepen and enhance your learning using these three tools. Yes. Um, But that doesn't change the subject, right? It just changes your relationship to the subject. Mm -hmm. So how did you dig deeper and 
wrap your brain. I know so many students struggle with like, oh, like I'm not interested. This information isn't interesting to me. It's not engaging. I think it's fundamental what you said, like the relationship piece, building relationship with your professors and teachers, speaking to your peers, you know, and, and these great tips and tools like flashcards and whatnot, those are great, but still you're left with the same content. Mm-hmm. So how did you overcome that piece? Like, you know, the pieces that didn't speak to you. Yeah. So I think the way that I saw it was I want to change the education system, but I can't change the fact that this is a class I have to take. I had to first understand that this is something I have to work through and it's something that I have to deal with for the next nine months. How can I make this the best nine months of my life? Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the mindset that I went into. And when I started to change my mindset about the subject, I actually started to like it a little bit more. And by the end of the year, it was actually my favorite class. And there's, there has yet to be a class that topped that class. That's (laughs) so interesting. Really? (laughs) Yeah. There has yet to be a class that topped it. Wow. That's great. So your advice to others who are struggling is change your mind. (laughs) Change your mind, you change your relationship to it, you could change your experience of it. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important, not just in school, but in life, right? I imagine you apply that same mindset to other areas of your life. Oh, for sure, because I take physics this year, and (laughs) (laughs) it was interesting, to say the least. (laughs) Did you do the same thing? I think I did. I, it was much more hands-on and like thinking about the world aspect. So I was able to make that class a lot more practical for my experience. Yeah. All right. So go on. So I interrupted your flow. So you said your sophomore year was your biggest year of transformation. Was that it? Was that like learning this idea of changing your mindset and shifting your relationship to world history, like the biggest lesson you learned sophomore year? I think that and then also the people who you go to high school with aren't the only ones who can impact your experience. So that was also the year that I started learning more about mentorship and how powerful it could be in my life. I'd had mentor-like figures in the sixth grade who were, I think they were sophomores in high school who were just basketball players, but they didn't directly mentor me. They kind of just showed up for the experience and said hi to me once or twice, but they didn't really mentor me. And then I had the same experience freshman year when we had senior mentors and they just kind of told us about like the SAT and our schedules. And then that was it. So sophomore year was also the year where I started to discover more about what real mentorship actually looks like and how to get one. And so I didn't actually get a full-time mentor until my junior year, but sophomore year was really the year when I realized that this is an idea that I feel like I've been grappling with for the past five years, but I need to set it in stone. I actually need to get a mentor so that I'm talking about these ideas or I'm having these different ways that I want to tackle, you know, education reform, but there's somebody who's on the other side of that who can be like a soundboard for me. How did you find your mentor? I actually found him on LinkedIn. (laughs) And that's another big part of sophomore year. I realized that the people in my experience don't have to like live near me at all. And he actually lives in New York and that's, I think that's three hours away, but I found him on LinkedIn when I was doing interviews for my book. My first message wasn't like, you know, can you be my mentor? It was kind of natural. I started out interviewing him for his book, for my book. And then he told me about his one word program. And from that, we just kept working with each other, kept interacting and it was really seamless, but it started off from that interaction and putting myself out there to ask people who I didn't know anything about, but was really interested in what they were doing things that they could do to help me and then ways I could help them as well. When did you start writing your book? So I started writing it in January of last year and turned in my final, final draft on December 12th of last year. So you were a junior. Yes, a junior. Your junior year. Wait a minute. Let me wrap my brain around this. (laughs) So junior year is one of the toughest years in high school. You're doing ACT prep or SAT prep, whichever you choose. The workload in and of itself junior year is 
intense. Socially, it's intense. And then you decide to write a book on top of all that. Like, what on earth was going on? How, how did you create space for that? Why did you decide now's the time to do it? Tell us more about that. So I created space for writing the book, just like with time management. So it wasn't as simple as that. I had people who kept me accountable and whatnot, but I knew that it was something that I wanted to do. And it stemmed from actually a program that I started called the Student Leadership Initiative Program. And um, that was just a platform that was mentorship-fueled organization that seeks to be like a big brother, big sister for underclassmen, teaching them that, you know, high school isn't just about academics, it's also about leadership, collaboration, professionalism, learning your interest, actually discovering what you want to do after high school. And so from that, I realized we're doing a lot of big things with SLIP, that's what we call it. And I wanted to turn that into something that kids from all across the country, all across the world could benefit from, even if they weren't a part of this SLIP program that I created. And so that's kind of where the journey started. I launched Slip at the beginning of my junior year, but I started writing the book. I think it was midway through junior year because I realized that I only have less than two years left in high school. And as soon as you graduate, like you start to forget bits and pieces of your experience. And it's hard to give advice to a freshman when you're a senior because, you know, you're three years removed. You haven't been through that experience in so long. Like you went through it, but it's definitely not the same as what they're going through. And so I knew I wanted to capture all of the things that I learned and from different people that I learned from into this book. And the only way I felt that was possible was by writing one. So it was definitely difficult in the beginning because not only was I doing that, we have this thing called a junior research project and you spend most of your sophomore year doing that as well. But I had to do a research project, have a science fair and all that fun stuff. And then, you know, high school sports, academic, social life, like you said. But I think at the end of the day, I kept reminding myself when I did get tough to write it, what mattered to me the most. And every single time it was, it was the book. I kept remembering all the people who, you know, would say to me, high school isn't, isn't a place where I feel like I'm truly discovering who I am and I'm not discovering what really drives me. And I want it to be that. And so those kind of people were definitely my motivation for continuing to write when it felt hard, when I got the writer's block and whatnot. And remembering that writing this book isn't just for me or my community, but also people who continue to go through a system that doesn't work for them. Yeah. So who, who were you writing the book for? Who is the audience? It's actually written from the perspective of a high school student, as you know, to high school students. And I think the unique thing about that is when I was going through different books in education, I realized that most of them weren't written by students. They weren't from the perspective of students. And most of the time when they considered the student's perspective, it was only for a page or two. And so going into that, I felt this is horrible. You know, we are the consumers of this education system and no one's listening to our voice. No one's actually hearing what we have to say. And so many times, like when I was reading the book over and thinking about who I wanted to address this to, at the beginning, it started to sound like a textbook, but I knew that I wanted this to be a book for high school students in a space where we have long not been represented and where we definitely need a, a bigger voice for. Do you think you'll be able to continue to have that conversation as you move on to college? I definitely think so. I mean, it would have, that's, that's kind of the beauty of it. When I was thinking about going on tour as a high school student, that's definitely what I was thinking of. But I think that I'll still be able to engage with people in this way because I have my old experiences to read through and talk about because they're still a part of the woman that I'm becoming. So I think that it, it may not be as easy as it could have been when I was a senior, but I definitely think it's still going to be possible given the circumstances and the fact that I still remember a lot from it. And if I don't, I can just read the book, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's right there.
Hey, guess what? I recently launched my new online meditation membership program where we meet weekly, meditate together, get some coaching tips, and answer questions from the community. It's a drop-in program and you're free to join weekly or just pop in when you need a tune-up. This program is normally $25 a month, but during COVID, I'm offering my community this completely for free. So if you've been curious about meditation and the benefits and want to be in community with other like-minded people committed to living their most empowered lives, I invite you to join now. Try it for a month or two for free and see if you feel more free. There's no obligation, so pop over and register now at annemarietcheresso.me. That's A-N-N-M-A-R-I-E-C-H-E-R-E-S-O dot me. And I'll be on the lookout for you. Oh, and don't forget to bring a friend. Welcome back to university. You're listening to my conversation with Deborah Olatunji. We've been talking about the ways in which Deborah took control of her own education and transformed her mindset and therefore her experience of high school. Let's rejoin the conversation as she tells me what one thing she would change about our education system in America if she could. change one thing about our education system and how it works, what would that be? I think I would change the curriculum because I feel like there's a lot of students who their frustration stems from the fact that we talk about STEM all the time and we try to push STEM on everybody, but STEM isn't for everyone. And then there's the other part of the danger of the single story. One of my favorite authors, actually, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, she gave a TED Talk on this. And I feel like in our curriculum, we are only telling one story. And it's so detrimental to students who don't, you know, think outside of what else is there to, to have from this education system and think that this is the only kind of curriculum that there is because I feel inspired and motivated by things that I didn't read in the classroom. You know, I feel inspired and motivated by different TED Talks and stories and people that I've interacted with who never would have been in my high school curriculum. So if there's one thing I would change, it would be the way that this curriculum continues to perpetuate the idea that it's one-sided, that there's only one story to be um, celebrated and acknowledged, and that if your story isn't within it, then you're not important. I feel like that's something that has definitely been detrimental to not only my generation, but generations before. And it continues to affect people as they go into the workforce and kind of try to find who they are after, you know, 18, you know, trying to figure out, is this the way I learn? And do I really understand myself? Well, even though I wasn't represented in any of the content that I consumed when I was in high school. Do you feel like lots of students are slipping through the cracks because they're not being seen in their educational experiences and they're being labeled and pigeonholed and they're not getting the kind of education that supports who they are as individuals. Mm-hmm. I definitely feel that way. Yeah. Did you feel that way about yourself? I definitely felt that way during my junior year because I took a class called AP Lang and we were actually talking about writing in the most vulnerable ways, like how different words can, you know, affect meaning and whatnot. We were going through different racial ideologies and whatnot. And that was a class that was, it kind of felt like a wake up call to me that, you know, education has never looked like me. It was never built to look like me and it doesn't care about students who look like me. I think that was one of the biggest struggles that I went through when trying to realize that, like, while I've had incredible educators, you know, I'm not dismissing that fact, but this education system wasn't built for students who are black 
black, who are Latino, who are Asian American. And I think that when I realized that, it just gave me more fuel to writing the book, to realize that there are so many stories that are missing from education. I don't shy away from that in the book. There's actually poetry in there as well. But there are so many things that are missing that we need to add because it's continuing to affect people and affect generations after they leave, long after they leave the high school education system. I also, as I'm hearing you talk, I feel like it's a disservice to white students because they're not getting educated about minority history. Like if we can't see one another, we can't understand one another. And one of the greatest ways that we can learn to be connected and in community together is by really clearly seeing each other. So I think you raised exactly. a, a really interesting point when you talk about you're not being represented in American history, for goodness sakes. Mm-hmm. And actually, one of the people that I ended up interviewing, Senator Tizzy Lockman, she's a senator from Delaware, she talked about how detrimental it is from the education, like the educator standpoint, when most of the teachers that I've had in front of the classroom have been white, and that affects students who are white as well. When they never see people who don't look like them in front of the classrooms, it's a matter of respect. They don't learn to respect people who don't look like them, and they only see, you know, black students, Asian students as students, and never as people in front of the room who have an authority, who have a message to share and have something very valuable to bring to the table. Yeah, that's really, really eye-opening. Thank you for raising that and bringing that even to my attention. As a white woman, I grew up in middle-class America. There's so much that I know that I'm ignorant to, and even little things like that that I don't think about, I think it contributes to our cultural ignorance all these little things that slip through the cracks. So I'm having a lot of appreciation for your willingness to stand up and speak it so others can hear it and then write it in a book and put it out there in the world in such a powerful and empowering way. Because I think one of the things that happens often is we sort of become at the effect of what's going on around us. And there's one of two ways we can be in the world, right? We can be at the effect of what's happening sort of become a victim of the world around us, or we can empower ourselves to be the change we wish to see in the world. And what I see you is doing the latter. Like I'm going to empower myself to stand for change, stand for doing things differently. And I think we need more of us like that out there in the world doing that. For sure. And that's what I always, you know, encourage people whenever I'm talking to them about different things that are going on, you know, you don't have to be the color of the person who's in the news in order to actually make change and actually be the person driving the action. Because at the end of the day, we're all connected. We should all care about things that weren't life. Because at the end of the day, if you don't care about communities that don't look like you, that just goes to show, you know, how you interact with the world and how you don't want to be an ally for others. And I think that allyship is so important for people because like I said, we're all connected and that's ultimately what brings us all together. We are all connected. And the sooner that we get to see that and recognize that and understand that, the better off we're all going to be. And unfortunately, it's taking a whole hell of a lot of education to wake one another up to that truth, that inevitable truth. I noticed that you make a reference to Matthew 28, 18 to 20 on your social media. So I want to know, what does that passage mean to you? First, share with us all what that passage is and tell us what it means to you. So Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given 
unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore in teaching all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So this has been my life verse ever since I was seven years old. And the reason why it still sticks with me today is because when I was seven, I told my mom and my brother that I wanted to be a missionary doctor. And I still very much want to be a missionary, not so much a doctor. But this verse always reminds me of my purpose. Like, you know, I told you in the beginning that my core value is being an igniter. And through that is from empowerment and, you know, lifting other people up. But it's also reminding people that in this identity of being an igniter, I'm also a Christian. And I also, you know, want to share, like, I want to be like the image of Jesus through the things that I do. Mm. What is the image of Jesus in your mind? To me, it's someone who understands the inequities in the world, but also, you know, reaches out that hand to be kind, to be compassionate, and does real action. Because, you know, Jesus always did real action in the Bible, you know, from the story of turning water into wine and healing the sick and whatnot. He was always very actionable. It wasn't just words. It was action that you could read and follow up with and try to be like. And so I've tried to be actionable in every single thing that I do to try to show others this is how you can be actionable in different things. And so to me, the image of Jesus is someone who leads by example, but also shows someone how they can be that example in a really practical way. Mm. Yeah, I love that. That's brilliant. So you sound like your Christianity means a lot to you. I'm assuming that this is a big part of your childhood and growing up. Tell me more about what what it was like growing up for you. So it's funny because my Christianity does play a really huge role even in my education story because I'm one of five children in this house and four of us ended up going to private school. I went to private school, a Baptist school in Bear, Delaware from kindergarten to the fourth grade. And for a long time, I thought there was this only like this one way to view the world. There was this one way to interact with people because I was, you know, at a private school and I'd never gone to public school and whatnot. And so for a really long time, that was the only thing in my world. But also my Christianity has taught me that there are different perspectives to consider and different ideas to learn from. And I'm constantly being like challenged in my beliefs and constantly trying to grow closer to God through the different people that I meet. And when I see people who who are really passionate about things that I'm not really passionate about, it inspires me to be more passionate about the things that I really care about. So I don't want to give a specific example, but because I don't want to go like, um, all right, I'm going to go there. (laughs) It's going to be a little bit political, but, um, over the summer, I went to a, a program called Distinguished Young Women, and I was, my, my house mom was a Republican, actually, and she was so incredibly passionate about her beliefs, and um, just seeing that was a wake-up call to me, because I'm not a Republican, I'm a moderate. We actually had a conversation for three hours straight about our beliefs. We never came to common ground, but we did come to, like, a consensus that we have different beliefs, and we respect that, but she just taught me how to stand firm in my beliefs despite the circumstances which is definitely something that I'm going to have to do in college and in all the different you know environments that I interact with but being a Christian in this day and age like as as I continue to get older I'm constantly learning how to be stronger in my faith how to you know interact with people who don't have the same beliefs to me and still show that kindness and love to them and then also how to meet people who are on the same common ground and how to grow with them. Yeah I mean that's Clearly, you can see out in the world what a big challenge that is for so many of our leaders and politicians. And I think it's such an important skill to have to be able to hear everyone's point of view Mm -hmm. and still stand for your own. Mine is valid. Mine is okay. And yours is okay. We can agree to disagree, 
and I can see you where you are and meet you where you are, and I'm going to stand for who I am and where I am too. So you're headed to Penn. This question I ask now is so interesting because it's a like a two-lane highway, and it's what is your biggest fear going into freshman year? And now we have two things to talk about, right? Because it's your biggest fear just a normal college freshman, and then it's the biggest fear is a normal college freshman in these unprecedented times. So now there's two layers to the question. So pick which one you want to address first. I think my biggest fear is that we're not going to be on campus. Yeah. That freaks me out every single time. And my parents don't think we're going to be on campus, which doesn't help at all. But I honestly, I, I can't imagine having a fall semester online. Yeah, I am with you. I know so many students are stressing about that very same thing. Will you consider not starting? Will you delay? I thought about taking a gap year, but then I realized that it would be the same experience if I was in the house, whereas it we're taking a gap year, because if I took a gap year and the pandemic is still going on, I can't leave the house. Mm-hmm. So where travel. would I go? Yeah. I talked myself out of doing a gap year. I mean, my mom, I don't think she would have let me. She was like, no, <laughs> you're not doing a gap year. But um, I definitely talked myself out of it and realized that if school is online, it's going to be basically the same experience of a gap year. So why would I, you know, delay when it's going to be similar? And they were saying, because I'm majoring in nursing and a lot of our curriculum is experiential work. You know, we are doing clinicals and whatnot. We're doing labs. And so they were saying that they might delay all the hands-on stuff to the winter and then do like the more like technical book stuff, I guess, in the fall. But just thinking of that, it just I know that it wouldn't be the same. And I'm so excited to get my scrubs and whatnot. Do you have any fears about going into healthcare? I actually had a really weird dream about this the other night, but I think that I'm even more like, I feel more drawn to help healthcare because of the kind of impact that I can make and also to helping, you know, expose the inequities in it. Penn Nursing actually hosted a webinar with Representative Lauren Underwood. She's in Congress for Illinois. She used to be a nurse and she is one of my biggest role models and you know, hearing her talk, hearing her talk about the pandemic, hearing how this is the year of the nurse and things aren't going like the way that we thought it would, that kind of just brought me to a point where I realized that even if it's scary, like there are going to be tough times, no doubt, and going into nursing isn't going to be like a stroll in the park. It's not going to be easy, but it's something that I want to be ready for and something that I want to contribute to because I know how much it means to me and how much it would mean to my community. It sounds like early on you knew you wanted to get into healthcare maybe not particularly nursing, but I, I heard you mention it earlier in our conversation. So is it something you've always known about yourself? Yeah, I definitely have always wanted to be in healthcare before. It was, like I said, I wanted to be a missionary doctor. Mm-hmm. But then I also realized, you know, I'm inspired by Lauren Underwood being in a nurse and then also a politician. And I realized that I don't want to spend seven years in school becoming a doctor because that's not what wakes me up in the morning. I'm drawn to solving inequities and being a problem solver and, you know, having my BSN in four years and then being able to work on the policy side and the healthcare side is so much more intriguing to me than waiting for seven years to get a lab coat. And I definitely respect people who go off into that profession, but I realize that it's not the profession to me. It's not profession for me. And I would feel so much more fulfilled becoming someone like Lauren, you know, a politician who has a background in healthcare, who can be someone from the inside being able to contribute and to actually help and to bring laws that actually, you know, help communities as opposed to just being someone from the outside. You are so clear at such a young age about your purpose and what you want to do in the world. And that's not true for most people your age or many. I don't, I, you know, I haven't taken a poll, right? But so many young people go into their freshman year like, 
deer in headlights not knowing what they're going to do. And that's really scary for so many students. What advice would you give people about getting clarity around their purpose? I would just encourage them to keep doing and not to be so hard on themselves because we've grown up in an education system that basically told us these are the things you need to learn. These are the core things that you're going to need in your life. And then once we turn 18, they're like, all right, what do you want to do with your life? Like you never gave us a choice to begin with. So how would we know? And it's I feel so like true. the way that I hacked high school, and I even say this in the book, the way that I hacked high school was just simply an experiential learning by hacking the way that I understand things, by going to have experiences that I wouldn't have in the classroom. So not feeling frustrated with the fact that it feels like I have lost time, but I can, you know, use the time I have now to discover what I want. And then also being understanding and flexible to the fact that I'm a human being, you know, like even if I say that I want to be a politician, that I want to go into nursing today, I, my interest may change two months from now. I would say to people who are grappling with their interest and not being sure of themselves that, you know, you're a human being, just keep experiencing things, keep having conversations, keep doing things. And then if you find something that you're truly interested in, if you find something that truly wakes you up, don't also be too married to that idea because you may have another interest. Mm -hmm. I think that when people put less pressure on what they found and less pressure on being 110% sure about what they want to do, they realize that life doesn't have to be a linear path and that it can be whatever you want. It doesn't have to be certain all the time. Well, life is almost never a linear path. So to strive for it, it would be, is crazy making. <laughs> I do think that so many young people have the impression that life is linear, that I go to high school, I work really hard to get into a good college because that's what you do. You get into a good college so that you can get a good job, so that you can have this good life. And all along losing themselves. Well, not even losing themselves, not even having space to figure out who they really are. And I, mm -hmm. one of the things I'm appreciating about talking with you, Deborah, is you clearly have had the space to see yourself, to see who you really are. And I'm wondering where that came from. Like, how has your upbringing contributed to that? I always thank my mom and, you know, Mother's Day was this past Sunday because I definitely would not be the woman that I am without her. I definitely believe that um, having a parent in your life who wholeheartedly believes in the different interests that you have and the different passions that you like talking about is so fundamental for students. And that's also something, a chapter that I have in the book, like this, how do you include your parents in your experience without them being like a helicopter parent and without them always telling you what to do, you know, cause that's a very big problem that we also see. I've had the privilege of growing up with a mother who not only cared about my aspirations and my dreams, but also for other kids. So I've learned, you know, how to be appreciative of her attention, to, of her love, of her empathy and her just being there for me, because I know that it's not something that everybody has. And her God-fearingness, her ability to tell us what is right and what is wrong and also help us have our own opinions has been so helpful for me in my journey because I don't think I could ever disappoint my mother because she's always encouraging us that whatever you do, as long as you do it with all of your heart, you know, that you're confident in it and that you ask God, you know, that's going to help you in the long run. That's going to be your anchor. That's going to be your rock. And whenever you need something, you can always come to me. Whenever I'm going through something, I am never afraid to talk to my mother. I'm always, you know, in her corner, always talking to her. And that's the kind of relationship that I've been fortunate to build with her. She sounds amazing. I'm so excited to know you and continue to support you on your journey and I have a lot of appreciation for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you so much for speaking your voice and investing your time and energy. So great to know you. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. That was my conversation with Deborah Olatunji. 
You can find out more about Debra at debraolatunji.com. And we've included all of our social media handles in the show notes below. And thank you, Debra, for sharing your story with me. I so enjoyed our conversation. Inspired by my conversation with Debra, I'd like to talk about context versus content. How many times have you wanted to give up when working towards a goal? Are you paying attention to your thoughts when you're frustrated, disappointed, or let down? In my conversation with Deborah, she teaches us the difference between context and content, something I like to talk a lot about. Content is what we are talking about, and context is how we are talking about it. So in Deborah's case, she didn't like her history class. The content is the class, and her feelings are the content, not liking the class was the context. It was the way she was being in relationship to what was occurring. The class was happening. That's the subject matter. That's the content. She didn't like the class. That was the context. Context is her relationship to the class, not liking it. And the content is the class is teaching history in a particular way. Now around what was occurring, Deborah had two choices. Number one, to remain frustrated with how the class was being taught, give up, shut herself down, not do the work, disengage, and potentially fail. And that's one legitimate option. And the second one is to change her way of being, her context or her mindset, and empower herself to create an outcome that she truly desired. Right. So again, this is a matter of mindset. So when we're self-aware, we can actually notice how we're being our context with what's occurring, the content. And we can notice when we're becoming at the effect of what's occurring and want to give up, which is a limited mindset and something that gets in the way of all of our ability to succeed. See, the key to living an empowered life is in the noticing. It's not just in the shifting. First, We have to notice thoughts like, I don't want to do this. I'm too tired. This is hard. I can't figure it out. It's not fair, which I know if you're anything like me, you've had those thoughts many, many times. The only difference between those who succeed and fail are those who make a choice when confronted with their limiting beliefs. So this happened to me this morning in the middle of my yoga class. I was feeling tired. And I had the thought, I can't do this anymore. I wanted to give up. And when I noticed myself having that thought, I checked in and said, is that true? Is it really true that I can't do this anymore? Or is my mind just telling me that? It might be true that I was feeling tired, but is it true that I cannot finish the class? And what I realized wasn't true. I actually took a breath, took a moment, and then I got back into the class and I finished. Noticing the thoughts like I can't do this is self-awareness as we become aware of what's going on inside ourselves. And then we question those thoughts and those beliefs from that place. We actually have choice. We can believe that thought. I can't do this, or we can choose another. Like in Deborah's case, she just chose. I can do something about this experience. What can I do? How can I change my experience? She chose a different thought. Today, I chose to 
continue on with my yoga class and finish it. So the difference between achieving your end goals or not achieving them really just boils down to first awareness, then mindset. So a victim says, I can't do this, right? Even if you say it, you can feel how your shoulders drop and your head sort of slunks down. You can feel that energy pulling you down. And a creator says, how can I do this, right? So arms are open, mind is up, alert, aware, looking for solutions. We're setting the mind up to find solutions when we ask the question, how can I do this? So once again, a victim says, I can't do this. A creator says, how can I do this? When we choose to practice mindfulness and being present, we're choosing to build our awareness so we can be empowered in our life and not at the effect of our limiting beliefs or our circumstances. We can't change what we're not aware of. It all starts with awareness. Okay, so my invitation for you is build your awareness muscle. Start paying attention to when you notice thoughts like, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. This isn't fair. And from that place, just make a choice. I will say that there have been times when I've decided I can't do this class anymore, this yoga class. I want to give up and I check in with myself and I realize I'm actually physically too tired or I'm mentally too tired and I need a break. And so from that place, I can empower myself to take a break, not because I'm failing, but because I'm recognizing that something else is more nurturing or nourishing to myself in that given moment. So that's an empowered choice. So just play this week with noticing your limiting beliefs and deciding which belief you want to give more attention to. All right, that's all for now. May you breathe easily. Take it one moment at a time and keep doing the things you love. And I'll see you next time. The university's executive producer is Tyler Green of thestoryproducer.com. This podcast is also produced and edited by Katie Clarkson. The university team also includes Marsha Craig, Ashwath Narayanan from Culture Media, Adam Harris, and Kim Redding. University is a production of Bring It Home, founded by Anne-Marie Chiresso. You can find out more at A-N-N-M-A-R-I-E-C-H-E-R-E-S-O dot me. Or follow us at Anne-Marie Chiresso on Instagram. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this show on your favorite podcast app and write us a review. It really does help us have more of an impact in the world. Thanks so much for listening in, and I look forward to seeing you next time. I imagine you apply that same mindset to other areas of your life. Oh, for sure. Because I take physics this year and <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting to say the least. <laughs>